Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Banking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we'll talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and my guest today is Michael New. Michael J. New, Ph.D., is a visiting associate professor of economics at Ave Maria University. A Phi Beta Kappa graduate from Dartmouth College, Dr. New received a master's degree in statistics and a doctorate in political science from Stanford University in 2002. Before coming to Florida, Dr. New worked as a postdoctoral researcher at the Harvard-MIT Data Center and later taught at both the University of Alabama and the University of Michigan-Dearborn. Dr. New researches and writes about the social science of pro-life issues. He gives presentations on both the positive impact of pro-life laws and the gains in public support for the pro-life position. He is a frequent blogger on National Review Online's The Corner. His writings have appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, National Review Online, Catholic Social Science Review, State Politics and Policy Quarterly, The Weekly Standard, National Review, and The New York Post. Michael, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. We're recording this show live. I'm going to be interacting with Michael for a little bit, and then I'll open it up to callers. And if there are no callers, then I'll continue on with my questions. If you have a question for Michael, you can call in at 646-668-8597. Once again, that number is 646-668-8597. So, Michael, I'm, I'd like to start off by uh, just kind of asking why you became pro-life. Like, What was it that led up to your, to your becoming pro-life and wanting to do work in the, in the pro-life field? That's a very good question. Um, I grew up in a Catholic household and went to Catholic schools all my life. But I'll be honest, when I was uh, in high school, uh, the issue of abortion uh, was really not even on my uh, radar screen. Uh, I know in 11th grade, uh, I saw the video of the silent scream. I was kind of disgusted by it, but I didn't run to the barricades and start doing pro-life stuff. And for undergrad, uh, I went to Dartmouth. And uh, really, the only things I enjoyed early on at that school uh, was the Catholic student group and conservative political groups. And I think that helped kind of steer me down a bit more of a, a pro-life path. And uh, probably at some point in my freshman year in college, I would have identified as pro-life. But again, it was just kind of a box I checked off. It was one of about 
15 things I had an opinion about, no more or less important than kind of capital gains tax or term limits or anything else I thought was important uh, that week. And then one day, my sophomore year, I was sitting at Mass, and I don't even remember what the sermon was about, but it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Something clicked, and I realized that this is like a really important issue. This is much more important than kind of the capital gains tax or term limits or affirmative action or anything else. And being a college student, I thought the best thing I could do would be start a group. So I talked to my priest. Uh, he put me in touch with another undergrad, starting a pro-life group. We got the group off the ground and never looked back. And I was always involved in pro-life groups, uh, both as an undergrad at Dartmouth and as a graduate student at Stanford. Well, great. What led you to become a social scientist and want to specifically do work on pro-life legislation and that kind of thing? Uh, that's interesting. Um, you know, as a student at Dartmouth, I really enjoyed the political science classes I took, and um, you know, I was kind of turned off by the whole court recruiting scene. Uh, I wasn't really sure if I was really cut out for law school, but I knew I liked political science, and I applied to several PhD programs, and I was uh, very blessed that uh, Stanford let me in. And I walked into that Ph.D. program at the ripe old age of 21. And uh, oh, wow. at first, I didn't really see a connection between uh, social science and uh, you know, my pro-life work. Uh, that you know, in political science and in grad school in general, there's kind of a, a herd mentality. You end up doing work pretty similar to what your advisor does, uh, does work on. And uh, at that time in the late 1990s, uh, there just weren't really a lot of political scientists uh, really doing much work on, on abortion. So I got my Ph.D., and I had a research fellowship at Harvard uh, for a couple of years. And um, I noticed that the 30th anniversary, this is 2002, and I noticed the 30th anniversary of Roe v. Wade's coming up in January. And I thought it might be interesting to get some kind of a study out. And I put together a study uh, looking at different kinds of pro-life laws and um, circulated it. And people were intrigued, but I couldn't find anyone uh, willing to publish it. And that spring at Harvard, uh, they had kind of a fellowship program for uh, D.C. professionals, one of the people who had a fellowship was Stuart Butler, who was a uh, health policy expert at the Heritage Foundation. And I got to meet him, make friends with him, and I pitched him the idea of my study. Uh, he was interested in it, uh, but Heritage had not really done uh, any uh, any kind of research or publishing on, on the abortion issue. So they were kind of nervous. They literally had an intern that summer reconstruct my whole data set from scratch uh, to make sure I didn't make any mistakes. And, um, you know, essentially they did agree to publish my study in 2004, which did show a lot of pro-life laws are effective at getting abortion numbers down. Uh, public funding restrictions, parental involvement laws, informed consent laws. And uh, when it was published, I kind of thought that everyone would pat me on my head and tell me what a nice young man I was and uh, go back yeah. to their life. And it didn't work out that way. Uh, people were very interested in the study. Uh, one thing I realized was that the pro-life movement really did not have kind of their own uh, in-house social scientist to counter claims being made by Guttmacher and other groups. So I'd right. often get requests from people to you know, look at other studies or offer some commentary. And um, I realized it was an important niche for me to fill, and I was happy to do it. And thankfully, uh, National Review took an interest in my writing. You know, They were willing to run my op-eds and my blog posts. So it became kind of a small uh, college industry for me. Um, and I was pleased to do that. And I guess in 2011, uh, the Charlotte Lowe's Institute got off the ground. Uh, that's uh, Susan B. Anthony List Education Research Arm. It's uh, a pro-life think tank. Uh, they put me on as an associate scholar, and I've been happy to uh, write and research kind of under their uh, heading uh, ever since then. Why do you suppose 
you had such difficulty in getting your study published before you reached Heritage? Is it because it's too controversial, or did the other groups that you tried to go with have a pro-choice bent, or what was the kind of the issue going on there? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, this all took place about uh, uh, some 15 years ago, and my memory is uh, a little bit hazy. Um, uh, no worries. You know, essentially, is that you know, I just think that you know there really had not been much you know research on on abortion being done. You know, the kind of, you know, right of center groups just hadn't really made that kind of uh, investment. Uh, I wasn't, frankly, that well known at the time. Uh, I kind of came of age doing more kind of libertarian work. You know, that I was publishing things on budget rules and fiscal limits, and that's what uh, I was kind of known for. So uh, maybe just lack of familiarity with me, a uh, little bit unwillingness to take a chance. Maybe I didn't really give the places quite enough time to vet my work. Uh, you know, you mm. circulate something in December, and people are more interested in Christmas and some time off, and you know, right. putting some time into a new study. So it's probably a variety of things. But I was glad that I persisted, and that uh, Heritage did publish that study of mine in 2004. Yeah, I have a friend who is very much uh, libertarian, so I think this conversation would probably appeal to him quite a bit. So now I'm not trained myself as a social scientist. So how does a social scientist properly conduct a study so that we can be sure that the data that we draw from it reflects reality? That's a very good question. I mean, I think that uh, what you want to do is um, you want to be thorough. Uh, you want to collect as much data as you can. Uh, you want to collect as you know, many data points from you – know, sometimes there's problems with state-level data, uh, but you at least want to get as many states as you can. Uh, you at least want to try to get as many years as you can feasibly. Uh, that uh, you know, again, lots of times I see very weak studies that look at only one year's worth of data, and that's you know yeah. usually you know pretty worthless. You want to be thorough and try to uh, collect data for as many years as as possible. And in the case of uh, when you're doing research on abortion, uh, I think it's important to use data, abortion data, from both the Center for Disease Control uh, and Guttmacher. Uh The mm -hmm. CDC does release abortion data every year, but unfortunately, report, reporting requirements are very weak, and um, some states just don't do a very good job. In fact, some states don't report any data at all. Uh, California, for instance, has not reported any abortion data since 1997. And they're mm -hmm. a big state. I'd estimate maybe as much as 20% of abortions nationally uh, take place in California. So the fact they're not in the data set really kind of, uh, you know, it doesn't you know, render it useless, but it does weaken that data set. Uh, mm -hmm. Guttmacher also collects data on abortion, and they kind of have the opposite problem. Uh, their data is thorough and probably a little more reliable, but it doesn't come out every year. So kind of the CDC data and the Guttmacher data are kind of mirror images of each other. CDC comes out every year, but it's not very reliable. The Guttmacher data is probably a little more reliable, but doesn't come out every year. So I've tried yeah. to use data from both sources, and the fact that it points in the right, similar direction, uh, I think, gives me some confidence in my findings. So I have one of your studies here in front of me. The study that I was reading and, and looking at to prepare for this interview today is your study analyzing the effect of state legislation on the incidence of abortion among among minors, which was, I think, published in 2007. Yeah, um, yeah and so you, you look at four different kinds of pro-life laws. You look at parental involvement requirements, Medicaid funding mm -hmm. restrictions, informed consent laws, and partial birth abortion ban. Could you could you briefly kind of explain what what those kinds of laws are? Sure. I mean, with regard to uh, public funding restrictions, uh, we have the high demand at the federal level uh, that places pretty strict limits on the ability of the federal government uh, to fund abortions for low-income women through Medicaid. That said, states can use their own money if they choose to. Uh, the federal money is used rarely. 
uh, and only some unique circumstances to fund abortions. But states sometimes choose to use their own money uh, to fund abortions for low-income women through Medicaid. And I think about 15 states do that. And um, you know, there's been changes. Some states have started doing this. Some states have stopped. And uh, it's just basic economics. If abortion is free or uh, subsidized, women get more abortions. And um, you know, I've shown very clearly that if you cut off taxpayer funding for abortion, abortion numbers go down. So um, it's very broadly consistent. Uh, almost everybody agrees, uh, pro-life researchers, uh, pro-choice researchers. Uh, there's broad agreement the federal Hyde Amendment has saved many lives. Um, you know, Center for uh, Reproductive Rights and Goop Mocker agree. Uh, my own analysis for Lozier showed that the Hyde Amendment has probably saved over 2 million lives uh, since 1976. So uh, that's uh, public funding restrictions. Uh, parental involvement laws are laws that require minor girls to either get permission from their parents for getting an abortion or at least notify their parents uh, before they obtain an abortion. And uh, again, uh, you involve parents. And that means in some cases uh, the minor girl does not get that abortion. That if uh, you know the parents can use uh, you know, persuasion, uh, and sometimes uh, will just prevent the abortion from taking place. Again, parents tend to be uh, more skeptical of abortions often than their uh, minor daughters are. So again, if you yeah. can get parents in the loop somehow and prevent uh, minor girls from sneaking around and getting that abortion behind their parents' back, uh, that will stop some abortions. And there's very broad agreement on that as well. I think that in my literature review, I found 17 studies. Uh, all 17 say you pass parental involvement laws, uh, minor abortions go down. Uh, informed consent laws, uh, these are laws that give women seeking abortions information. Um, you know, This information can include information about field development, information about uh, public and private sources of support uh, for pregnant women, information about potential health risks with the abortion. So again, it just gives women information. And again, um, you know, you give women alternatives, and sometimes they'll take that alternative. I mean, these laws aren't magical, uh, but when they're well designed, and when women have to view this information and wait a little bit, you know, we finally get abortion numbers down here from about three percent to six percent. So again, you offer an alternative, and some women will choose that alternative, thankfully. And then right. finally, partial birth abortions. Uh, that's the law that was uh, we had a big campaign in the mid to late '90s to ban partial birth abortions. Uh, president Bush signed a federal ban to law when he was president. Uh, it limits a, a type of abortion uh, that's done late term. Uh, it's kind of graphic. It involves a, a baby being partially delivered, and then the abortionist uh, inserts scissors into the back of the baby's skull and uh, performs the abortion that way. And it's very gruesome. And uh, it was done um, you know, partly to kind of shift opinion on the issue uh, that was so horrible and so graphic, uh, the media couldn't ignore this. Uh, the media loves to ignore the issue, uh, but we had pictures of being of abortions being done, you know, on TV, in books, in magazines. It couldn't be ignored. It's not really clear what impact the legal weight of this ban had, but the fact that we got you know this a lot of attention really showed how radical our policy really is. It was a something that people were disgusted by for good reason. And again, it's not clear that the legal weight of this ban uh, has had a lot of impact, but certainly it shifted public opinion in a very positive direction. Yeah. Now, have you only been studying the impact of these laws, or have you been involved in trying to get them passed as well? Uh, I've been involved in trying to get them passed. I've uh, testified in front of uh, state legislatures. Uh, I did testify in front of the Massachusetts state legislature uh, on an informed consent law. Uh, I think I submitted some uh, written testimony to Rhode Island. I was involved at the federal level as well. Uh, one thing that pro-lifers uh, were trying to do about 10 years ago is pass something called Siena, 
the Child Interstate Abortion Notification Act. And what that would do is it would strengthen these parental involvement laws by making it a crime for a, a non-parent to take a minor girl across state lines uh, to get mm-hmm. an abortion. The parental involvement laws do some good, but sadly, sometimes they can be circumvented by minor girls who can hop across a state line and right. get an abortion in a state where the laws are more permissive. So this would tighten this up to make it illegal for a, uh, a non-parent, you know, a friend or whatever, or a boyfriend to take a minor girl across the state line to get an abortion. Uh, I testified from a U.S. Congressional Committee on that law. So, yeah, I have been uh, happy to uh, you know, be helpful to uh, people around the country trying to enact these uh, protective laws. Well, great, great. Something else I appreciated from the study itself is that the sources that you use are sources that people hostile to the pro-life message can accept, such as the Centers for Disease Control, NARAL, the Census Bureau, etc. So no one can just dismiss your study as all just using pro-life sources and, and being biased in that respect. Yeah, I try to get data from you know as many mainstream sources as I can. You know, I do use data from the CDC. I get employment data from Bureau of Labor Statistics. You know, I try to uh, you know be as thorough as I can that way. And in addition to publishing um, my studies through Heritage Foundation, I have gone through uh, the peer review process. I've had two studies come out through uh, uh, State Politics and Policy Quarterly. Uh, that's the top state politics journal in the country, and it's. It can be tough that, uh, frankly, in academic publishing, if you're making a quote-unquote conservative argument or an argument that has conservative policy implications, it's a lot harder to get that uh, that manuscript published. Uh, but thankfully, I did find an editor there who was you know, not ideologically sympathetic but fair-minded, and it was vetted and reviewed, and you know, people came up with some ways I could improve uh, my analysis a little bit, which I did, and it got published in a peer-reviewed journal that's very respected. So the fact of kind of being able to publish things kind of outside the conservative pro-life movement, I hope gives my research a bit more uh, credibility. An argument that I hear from abortion choice advocates fairly often is that it's not pro-life laws that reduce instances of abortion. It's sex education and access to birth control that leads to a reduction in abortion. So how would you respond to an abortion choice person who makes that kind of an argument? Well, that's uh, something you hear from quite a lot of people, both abortion choice people, especially the media. And um, essentially, I would just tell them to uh, first take a deep breath, and then <laughs> let's actually look at, uh, at the data and what the data tells us. And we've yeah. seen uh, abortion numbers decline uh, quite a lot. Uh, that I think very quietly, the pro-life movement's a lot more effective than people realize. Uh, the abortion rate today is half what it was in 1980. Uh, we've gotten the abortion rate down by over 50%. That's pretty significant. Now, that means a yeah. woman today is half as likely to have had an abortion as her counterpart was some 37 years ago. So we've got numbers down, okay, which is good. But why have they gone down? Well, one reason we know why they have not gone down is because um, you know, we know for a fact there are not fewer unintended pregnancies. Uh, the unintended pregnancy rate today is about the same as it was in 1980. If it's gone down, it hasn't gone down by much. So essentially, more people are using contraceptives. It is true, contraceptive use rates have gone up, but unintended pregnancy rates are about the same. So I always tell people if contraceptives are so effective and more people are using them, you know, why has the unintended pregnancy rate gone down? And if they're honest, they can see my point. And if they're dishonest, they start calling me names, which sometimes does happen, <laughs> sadly. But uh, yeah. the other thing to keep in mind is that, okay, so unintended pregnancies are, are about happening at the same rate. Why are abortions going down? Well, we know the why. And the reason why is because a higher percentage of women with unintended pregnancies 
are carrying the pregnancy to term. And we actually have data from Guttmacher on this, which again, used to be Planned Parenthood's research arm and is not very sympathetic to pro-lifers. We knew that about uh, 40% of these pregnancies are being carried to term in the mid-90s. Now it's up like 57, 58%. So it's been a combination of laws, changing hearts and minds, uh, the great work of our pregnancy resource centers. So again, women are still getting pregnant. Uh, they're just carrying these pregnancies to term. And again, I think the pro-life efforts have had a lot to do with that. And now some take it even further and say that making abortion illegal doesn't reduce the instances of abortion. How would you respond to someone who makes that kind of an argument, that we should keep abortion legal and just work toward the underlying things that, that cause women to, to wander to need abortions, but that we shouldn't make it illegal because women are still going to be having it? Well, there's very good research that shows that the instance of abortion is sensitive to its, its legal status. I mean, we know that in countries where it's uh, you know, limited, like Ireland and Poland, uh, the instance is a lot less. We also have some very good research kind of after uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, that a lot of uh, formerly communist countries changed their policies in, in different ways. And we know from looking at them, those countries that moved toward legalization, like Romania did tragically, saw abortions go up. Those that passed protective pro-life laws like Poland saw their numbers go down. So there is a very good body of research that shows that, you know, the instance of abortion is, you know, depends in part on its legal status. That's one thing. We also know just, you know, you don't have to necessarily ban abortion to get the numbers down. We know just even from, you know, the U.S. experience that, you know, again, different kinds of pro-life laws do work. If you cut off public funding for abortion, uh, like we have done with, uh, with Medicaid in certain states, numbers have gone down. And again... Everybody agrees with that. Guttmacher agrees. Again, they're hardly sympathetic toward uh, what pro-lifers want to do, uh, but you know they respect the data, and their own publications do admit that, yes, cutting off public funding uh, does get abortion numbers down. So, again, there's good research showing that you know changing laws um, you know, does a variety of things. It informs people. It changes hearts and minds, and it does get the numbers down. Yeah, that, that's a great point because it does seem that Planned Parenthood knows – full well that pro-life laws do affect the abortion rates. That's why they fight so hard to, to oppose them, especially defending Planned Parenthood. Their argument is, you, you know, you can't get, you know, health services, including abortion, any other way. So, yeah, I think that's, a, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, and then another argument, one that you do address in your study, is that some people argue that if you forbid a minor from having an abortion in one state, she could travel to a neighboring state to obtain an abortion. Is this a legitimate concern when it comes to reducing the rates of abortion, or in the long run, is it, is it still not impacted too severely by some states enacting pro-life laws? Well, again, you know, again, laws you know can do some good, but they're not magical. I mean, people circumvent laws; it does happen, uh, but they right. still do some good. I mean, we have there's a, the best study of a parental involvement law um, was done on the law that uh, was George then Governor George W. Bush signed in Texas, and that law took effect, I guess, in 2000. And they really saw pretty clearly uh, that um, you know several things happened. First, minor abortions went down after the law took effect. Uh, they also uh, saw that in the very short term, uh, the minor birth rate went up. And that shows pretty clearly that some girls who have otherwise had abortions uh, carried their pregnancies to term. So again, the fact that you see uh, a short-term increase in the birth rate uh, does give you some indication that the legal way of the law had some some impact. And yeah, it is true that in some states, minor girls can um, circumvent the law and go across state lines. But I don't think our response is to throw our hands in the air. I think our response is to get more and more states to pass these laws. 
or to right. pass federal legislation like the Child Interstate Abortion Notification Act uh, to make that harder. So, again, yeah, no yeah. law is perfect. Laws can be circumvented. Uh, but even imperfect laws can still do some good. You mentioned in your study that to test for the impact of pro-life legislation, you conducted a multi-regression analysis. Uh, for someone like me who's not educated as a social scientist, what does a multi-regression analysis consist of? Sure. Essentially, what social scientists do when we want to study phenomenon is we often use a technique called regression analysis. And when you look at any phenomenon, including abortion, there's many things that could say have an impact on a state's abortion rate, uh, how well the economy is doing, for instance, uh, demographic shifts, for instance, uh, presence or absence of pro-life laws, for instance. So there's many different factors that could impact a state's abortion rate in any given year. And what regression analysis allows us to do allows us to hold constant these other factors to really gauge the impact of each individual type of pro-life law. So, you know, we're comparing similar states to similar states. We can say that, you know, states with fast economic growth, you know, the pro-life law, you know, behave this way, uh, whereas the states with slower economic growth, uh, pro-life law behaved a different way. Again, we can hold constant some of the background noise and really focus the, on the impact of each different kind of pro-life law. Okay. I'm putting the uh, the reference to the the study that I'm using here in the show notes for anyone who'd like to go in and read up on that and see your, your research and everything. And so, yeah, defining these terms, I think, will help to understand a little bit for people who aren't educated as a social scientist. And so another term that was kind of unfamiliar to me is you talk about possible endogeneity problems. Uh, what is endogeneity and how can it be a problem to social scientists? Sure, endogeneity is a problem that the social scientists have have to deal with. Uh, Essentially, if I were able to test pro-life laws in like a laboratory setting, I would try to set I would set things up randomly. I'd randomly pick some states to pass pro-life laws. I'd randomly pick other states not to, and I'd see what happened. But of course, the real world isn't random. Uh, Some states choose to pass pro-life laws. Other states choose not to. And those states that pass pro-life laws, maybe they're different than the other states. Maybe these are states that are becoming more conservative or more religious. And it might be these other differences that are kind of driving the abortion declines and not legislation. So again, sometimes you know when you get uh, uh, you study things, uh, you have to be aware of the fact that uh, you know you're not being you're not able to do kind of treatment and control groups randomly, uh, you get groups of states, groups of people choosing different things, and the states that choose to enact a different policy might be different than the other states, and that might be biasing or affecting your, your findings somewhat. So what I was able to do in my research to kind of combat this was I looked, compared states that uh, passed pro-life laws that stayed in effect to those states that passed pro-life laws that were later struck down by a judicial ruling. Because the way I saw it, all these states made the same decision to pass a pro-life law. So they're all probably fairly similar states. But in some cases, the law took effect. In other cases, it was struck down by judicial ruling. So we looked at what happened in these states. And we saw that, again, when the state pro-life law stayed in effect, abortion numbers went down. When a state law was struck down by the judiciary, very little happened. So it really seemed that the laws really drive the decline and not other things that might be correlated with the passage of a pro-life law. Okay. One possible criticism of your study here is is one that you addressed in the study itself, and it's that it wasn't pro-life laws, but the changing values that would then lead to abortion instances being decreased. And so uh, the way that you responded to that is you talked about a couple of different experiments, such as comparing the the minor abortion rate to the total abortion rate and uh, comparing enacted legislation to nullified legislation. 
Yeah, I mean, that so, takes on another statistical test. Idea, that you'd expect different kinds of pro-life laws to work in different ways. You know, that essentially a parental involvement law would affect minors. It probably wouldn't have a direct effect on adults. And you know, we can see that looking at uh, you know, these laws do affect you know the abortion rate for you know girls under seven or girls seventeen and under. They don't have much of an effect on eighteen or nineteen year olds, and we wouldn't expect them to because once a girl is eighteen, you know they don't need their parents' permission. Uh, they don't need to notify their parents. So um, you know again, you kind of see you can look at different tests like that to make sure that laws are affecting the population subgroups that you think they would. Right, and so. In order to show that it's not the changing values, but it is the actual pro-life laws that are affecting the abortion rates, you would then compare it, the minor abortion rate to the overall abortion rate. And you see that mm. regarding the four different kinds of laws you were looking at, they, they weren't all affected the same way. But if it was the changing values, you would expect them to all be affected the same way because they would affect minors and the general population yes. the same. Yeah, values are that, changing. You kind of expect consistent declines across age groups. But when a parental involvement yeah. law is passed, you only see the numbers go down amongst minors, whereas a uh, non-minor stays about the same. Similarly, like you can do the reverse test with, with informed consent laws. You'd expect informed consent might affect you know adults. You know, essentially, they might be persuaded if they heard about you know, alternative source of support. But an informed consent law probably wouldn't do much to change a minor who's trying to uh, conceal a pregnancy uh, or her sexual activity uh, from her parents. Yeah, and so you, you talked earlier about about going in front of, of legislators and, and giving testimony regarding some laws, such as that you're trying to make it illegal for, for a non-parent to take a minor across state lines to kind of circumvent these pro-life laws. Have these laws been pretty effective? Have you looked at the, the general population of a particular state to see if they would approve of these laws? Or how, how is like the general response to them? Well, been? essentially, I was, I was testifying on behalf of a federal law that would have made it illegal to uh, um, take a minor across state lines, and that law was not passed. Um, we were keep working on it, uh, but unfortunately, we did not succeed in, in getting it uh, getting it through. Um, I hate to admit this, but I'm not sure I've ever actually testified on something uh, that actually um, you know did in fact take effect. That uh, sadly, uh, we were making progress on informed consent in Massachusetts, and then the Supreme Judicial Court issued that ruling on same-sex marriage, and uh, that's all anybody wanted to talk about for the next several uh, you know several months. So that kind of window of opportunity closed for us. So um, yeah. you know, essentially, that uh, you know, by and large, uh, um, you know, I'm uh, happy to be of service whenever I'm called to testify. Uh, but I can't actually think of a time I've testified on a law that actually did uh, did take effect. Okay, so you were testifying then for a law on the national level, not on the state level. Yes, correct. Uh, okay, so now the the study that I've been going off of here. Uh, it's from 2007, which is uh, you know 10 years ago. Have you done any additional studies since then regarding the effectiveness of pro-life laws, or perhaps any new types of pro-life laws that have been enacted, such as 20-week abortion bans due to the possibility of fetal pain? Uh, that's actually a very good question. I have my academic journal article came out in 2011, and I was able to update that article in 2014 with uh, with some new data. So I published articles there. I also um, uh, last year, uh, did an analysis on the impact of the Hyde Amendment. Uh, that last uh, fall, we had the 40th anniversary of the passage of the Hyde Amendment, and um, does good every year, uh, saves lives every year. And again, I calculated that the federal Hyde Amendment has saved over uh, two million lives in a 40-year time span. So I was able to get that uh, that published. I'm working on some other things as well. I do want to look at 20-week abortion bans. Uh, but the thing is, most of those have been passed fairly recently, 
and abortion data is kind of slow to come out. That right now it's 2017, and I think yeah. the most recent year for which the CDC has released data is 2013. I might be off by a year, uh, but unfortunately, since the data is not current, I really can't evaluate those uh, those laws. But I am working on some new projects. Again, I want to look at 20-week abortion bans. I want to week work on um, laws that require uh, abortion facilities to do an ultrasound uh, prior to the abortion. Uh, I want to look at clinic regulations. So there's some new things to look at. I just have to be a little bit patient for the data to come out. Okay. What can pro-life people take from the studies that you've done? Now, pro-life people can take quite a lot. I mean, first, one thing I always try to let people know is we have made progress, and I think sometimes it's uh, progress we can do a better job advertising. Again, the abortion rate's fallen by 50 percent since 1980. Uh, that's very good news. I mean, that really does mean that yeah. uh, pro-life efforts to change hearts and minds have been effective, and uh, the media doesn't really cover this much. Uh, whatever they do, they credit contraception, which I've said before is not uh, not correct. That's one thing. The second thing I really hope pro-lifers take is that uh, you know pro-life politics is important. I mean, I think when it comes to pro-life activism, we need to fight this battle on many fronts. We need people praying. Uh, we need people uh, in front of abortion clinics. We need pregnancy resource centers. We need people running for office. Uh, we need uh, people giving money. There's no shortage of things that we can we can do. But I do think it's important that it does show that uh, the political angle is an important one. Uh, that I want to show if you elect a pro-life person to a legislature or to Congress, you know, it'll make it more likely for a pro-life law to be passed, and that law will save lives. So I just want to give people some hope that they're being uh, efficacious and uh, reinforce the fact we keep need to uh, we need to elect more pro-life people to uh, public office. Yeah, um, and I think anything that gives pro-life people hope, especially that you know there are things that we can do to positively impact the abortion issue, I think is always a, a great thing. And so I, I, for one, am very appreciative of the work that you've done. No, thanks. I mean, I, uh, you know, happy to, to be of service that, uh, you know, I think it's unfortunate the pro-life movement, under, understandable, but still unfortunate. We really have not invested much in research. Uh, that I think that uh, a lot of pro-life money has gone to kind of short-term things like uh, pregnancy resource centers and politics. That's important. Don't get me wrong. Uh, yeah. But sometimes you know, with research, uh, a study I write today is not necessarily going to maybe save a life tomorrow. Uh, but by showing that these laws do a positive impact and that pro-life policies are beneficial, uh, can change hearts and minds. And, you know, creating kind of an infrastructure of good research uh, can offer some long-term benefits. So I'm glad I can uh, I can do this. Yeah. Those are actually uh, all the questions that I have for you. Um, is there anything that you'd like to add uh, regarding any, any of your studies or anything before we uh, before we close? I'll just say if anyone's interested in my research, uh, people can uh, friend me on Facebook, uh, Michael New. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, uh, Michael underscore J underscore New. I typically uh, have about at least one blog post a week. Uh, sometimes more. Occasionally I do skip a week, but I do try to at least write once a week. And when I do write something, I tweet it out. So again, I'm happy to uh, you know write and tweet about uh, a variety of things on the social science of life issue, whether it's uh, public opinion, uh, whether it's abortion trends, whether it's pro-life laws, whether it's contraception programs. So um, again, I'm happy to be of service to the, the broader pro-life movement. I'm going to be coming to St. Louis to speak at their uh, Respect Life gathering. Uh, the Diocese of St. Louis is doing a conference in October, so if you're in the St. Louis area, uh, look for me there. Um, so that's what I have. All right. Well, this has, again, been an interview with Michael New. I'd like to thank you for listening. And, uh, Michael, once again, I'd like to thank you for coming on and letting me interview you and talk about your work. Great. Glad I could do it. Keep the great work at LTI.
Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, if you appreciate the information we've been uh, we've been displaying here, you, uh, we would just ask you to share it around Facebook, Twitter, wherever you frequent on social media. Uh, rate and review us on our Facebook page and on iTunes. Uh, as well, this is a weekly podcast, and it uh, takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on Donate in the menu on the top. That's the Pro-Life Institute or the uh, Life Training Institute website. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account, and donations are also tax-deductible. Now, uh, this next week, Nathan uh, and Aaron are going to be joining me again, and we're going to be talking about how to construct an argument. We're going to talk a little bit about logical argumentation, what goes into constructing an argument, how to respond to an argument, and how to recognize logical fallacies. That's going to be in just a couple days on Sunday. So once again, I'd like to thank you for, for listening, and we will see you next time. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.